Welcome to the IAH podcast, where we profile current and former fellows of the Institute for Arts and Humanities here at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Melissa Clay, communications specialist. In part two of our conversation with Patricia Parker, associate professor and chair of the Department of Communication, Philip Hollingsworth, IAH coordinator for faculty programs, inquires how the Ella Baker Women's Center reinvigorated Dr. Parker's passion for teaching undergraduate students. They also discuss Ella Baker's role in the civil rights movement and her life as inspiration for positive change in the triangle and the university community. We conclude with a wonderful discussion on making time for writing and personal sources of inspiration. My teaching award was the Provost Award for Engaged Teaching. So they give an award for engaged research and engaged uh, teaching. Okay. And so I won one for teaching. So, so you mentioned that it ignited your teaching. How, yes. how do you feel... Do you have kind of an idea of what kind of ignited that, or what was it just the interest or the passion, the work you put into it, or? or? Well, I mean, I think it was part of it was that. Well, I think the main thing was that I had a direct connection of um, supporting the girls who really wanted these opportunities to, you know, for growth, Mm -hmm. and had some knowledge about, you know, they had some ideas about how they wanted their communities to change and and. And here I had students, our students, we have the best students in the world, right? At UNC Chapel Hill come in who are ready to change the world, right? Right. And I, I wanted to make that connection between students who really wanted to work with people in communities uh, to make communities better mm-hmm. and to have people in communities, in this case um, African-American girls who are living in low-income communities, teach our students knowledge about what change looks like. And so that, and that's an ongoing project, this idea of, you know, universities engaging with communities. And what does that look like when you have elites working with people in vulnerable life situations? And then we call it partnership, but you have this different, this power differential, right? right? And so that was, I mean, I'm still learning about that. And um, the things that I learned in teaching that first year seminar, first of all, my, my approach was that the... I get them at their, <laughs> as first-year students, and then I've got four years that you know they can still, first of all, grow in terms of what they're learning, and hopefully continue to work with me. And so I have had several of the students who were in my first-year seminar who who continue to work with the Ella Baker Women's Center. Some, so yeah. we'd like to have we have workshops in the summer, and um, and so sometimes they'll come back and work for me in the summer. Um, I have alumni who now come back to speak in the courses. I'm thinking about an honors um, seminar that I'm uh, proposing in which I've really sort of ramped that up because I now have a whole cadre cadre of uh, alumni that are themselves working for nonprofit organizations, um, going to, you know, to graduate school, working for think tanks. That's great. Yeah. It's pretty inspiring. Yeah. Real quick, I'd also like, you named the center after Ella Baker. Yes. And I read a little bit about her and her work, and I was just wondering, could you speak a little bit to who she is or, or who she was and who she, what she means to you yes. personally? Absolutely. So, in fact, I'm writing a book um, right now based on the work that I've been doing that's called Ella's Daughters. Um, and it looks at, you know, sort of the, the organizing tradition through the eyes of um, African-American girls. And um, Ella Baker was a um, human rights, f- uh, feminist, civil rights organizer that lived, 
she lived, she was born in 1913 and um, lived, died on her birthday in 1986. Oh, wow. Right? Okay. I meant to say she was born in 1903. Died on her birthday mm-hmm. in, 19, in 1986. And for probably from the time that she was in her early 20s, she was doing activism and working on thinking about the liberation of people everywhere, right? Working right. on oppressed people. But her, she's most well known for her work with the civil rights organization in the 60s. And it is because of her that the youth, what everyone remembers about the youth organiza- organizing of the civil rights movement, SNCC, which is the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, if it not, had not been for Ella Baker's advocacy for youth voices, we wouldn't have SNCC. Uh, she was the person that organized the conference where students were already, they'd already been igniting, you know, these, the sit-ins and the, the struggle for civil rights um, all over college campuses in the um, late 50s and early 60s. And so she, it was her idea to bring them together and then for them to have their own, keep their own voice in um, working. And so what she, what Ella Baker stood for was just that, that when people, people understand, you had a famous quote that said, uh, people who are living under, under the heels of oppression should be the ones who are in the lead of getting that heel off their neck. <laughs> right. Right? Mm-hmm. And um, so that's the model that I try to follow in working with people in communities. If when we think about the impacts of poverty and racism or um, you know, any kind of oppression, we have to start with the experiences that people are, who are you know, most impacted by some of those practices, what their experiences are, and what their knowledge is, the knowledge that's already in the community right. that, that we can use to sort of change that and to inform uh, different policies. So that was, that's how she's impacted me in terms of working with communities, it was the same approach that I've used in working with diversity liaisons on this campus. Wow. As, as someone who is um, in the dean's office thinking about diversity, I, how, and, and I'm in communication, how do I go to a chemistry department and say, so here's what diversity means to you in your department? No. Yeah. You're the <laughs> ones who are in your professional organizations. So that was the message that we spread, that I spread to all the diversity liaisons. You think about and talk about what does difference mean and how is it impacted, who's most impacted. Sometimes it's gender, sometimes it might, might be race, sometimes it could be um, language minorities. That's a, you know, sort of a new phrase that people, nobody talks about. Maybe you know oh, okay. from romance yeah. languages. But mm-hmm. how are you defining what the complexities are? And then my role then is to be a facilitator of that conversation of you know, how to start to define that for the people who might be resistant to it, um, to think of tools and opportunities for change. It's the same, to me it's the same process, whether you're working with people in communities or working in organizations. You mentioned resistance. How, how do you tactfully kind of soften that resistance or, or mitigate that? Well, or, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, it's not really, that's not my approach to soften the resistance. Okay, my, I see. I, so I see resistance as knowledge. So in other words, that's a perspective that's helping us to understand this complexity, right? Mm -hmm. When people are resistant to something, it probably has something to do with their experience with a particular way of doing or being, Mm -hmm. you know, and it might be, you know, it might be just resistance to change. And then to me, it's about, and this is Ella Baker, her approach was to create free spaces for dialogue. And by free spaces, that means that 
you can come into that space and show up with um, an opinion and there will be a way of having that dialogue as long as we're working toward trying to work out something where we are we are in community together okay right? right so if we have that as sort of our underlying approach right that we come in with the idea that you know there might be conflict but we are in community so we're yes. going to stay in this community but so once I get that, like I love being in those spaces because right. I can tell you what I think, knowing that it's not going to take us out of community together, and I we're see. working toward a way that we can coexist. That's great. Um, so you mentioned your your book you're working on now, Ella's mm -hmm. Daughters. Mm -hmm. uh, can you share a little bit more about your process, or either the content, or? Mm -hmm. or you know, with your new position, how, how do you find time to work on this? Oh, that's a great, <laughs> great question. Well, um, I have an agreement with my um, staff, and I have a wonderful assistant who helps me to manage my calendar. So she sees my calendar and is um, able to help me to manage. So there are lots of people who want to have my time. And so I carve out, you know, technically the chair's position is a half-time position. So in other words... We're, yeah. um, you know, so that, that translates into 20 hours a week. So that's a myth, obviously. That's, right. but, but it gives me something to work with. Okay. So I carve out um, two hours of research time, and my prime time is morning. Um, okay. So I try to tr carve out that time um, three days a week. And I've been pretty consistent with that this, this semester. There are times that I, you know, can't do that. But, you know, so that's, um, and I have, an, I have an accountability structure built in where I'm working with someone who, um, you know, sort of that I sort of check in with and we're right. doing some writing. And I think together. that always helps. Yeah. It kind of speaks to your, uh, what I see is a theme of community for you and yeah. that, that accountability that's involved with that. It, that's right. It includes the writing process too, doesn't right, it? Right, it does. And last thing, at a recent dinner at the IH, we had a table, uh, as is tradition, we have a table topic, mm -hmm. and the table topic was inspiration, and what, where you derive inspiration, where's that source? And I'd just like to ask you, where, what's, do you have a, a personal source or a subject area? Where, where does your inspiration come from? Mm, that is a good question. Um, or a source, it's right. not always one, it's not mm -hmm. always singular. So uh, today is the the about mm, the seventeenth year anniversary of my mother's passing, October twenty uh, yeah October twenty second, um, and um, and that actually happened about the year that I came here. I, I came here in nineteen ninety eight. Oh, wow. Yeah, and um, so. Um, I, I would say that my my mother is my inspiration, but um, so I'm the youngest of thirteen. Oh wow! Yeah, and so the, my whole family and my uh, my dad um, passed away years earlier, mm -hmm. and um, but um, my so my family of origin is my inspiration. I um, I have. Um, one of my oldest sisters was um, one of the first to attend the liberal arts co college in Arkansas where we all grew up, 13 of us, right? Okay. And so by the time I went to third grade, that was the year that um, desegregation was happening in the South. And um, 
you know, Little Rock happened in 1957, Central, Central that was that big, yeah. that's sort of a, an icon of the resistance to right. change. And um, I was born in 1958, so it, it took until, that's how long it took for the schools to desegregate. Yeah. And um, so I, I guess I wanted to say that by, by the time I went through that experience, I already had an older sister who was in college who had already made, she was such a role model for us, you know, in terms yeah. of making that sacrifice to go to to the, the, the all-white university, previously all-white wow, university. Yeah. That's powerful. Um, it is. And so my family has always been a source of inspiration. I mean, so I'm the youngest. I have a PhD. I'm a chair of a department. It's still never, it's never, <laughs> I'm still just, you know, the baby of the family uh, uh, kind of so thing. So am I. So yes. Right? It, you, you get that. I, I so, completely understand. Right. But I, I mean, but, it, but with that experience just comes this incredible sense of, um, there, I have a gratefulness, you know, to for all the opportunities that I have, but at the same time, there's a power. So this country, this paradox of being grateful but also feeling powerful. Yes. You know, um, to to be, um, you know, that I'm capable of doing. Right. You know, whatever is whatever challenge is placed in front of me. Yeah, it it makes me think. A few years ago, you know, being someone in in languages, I'll actually think of the words what they actually mean and mm-hmm. just instead of just how we use them but that word encourage if you really think about it it's to like give courage so yeah. it's it's that mm-hmm. oh wow and that's empowering in and of itself it's, right is that encouragement that support you you have from your family just examples for example your sister mm-hmm. it gives you that courage that power to yes to absolutely and by the time I went to the, I went to that same small liberal arts college by the time oh, I got there yeah. I was the seventh or eighth in my family to have gone there and out of our 13 all of us um went to college most of their like seven or i used to know these statistics like right. seven or eight master's degree mine is the only phd so far that's amazing yeah it is that's great and i'm incredibly proud of my family and so yeah that's my inspiration well thank you very much that was that was great it was thank a you. pleasure talking to you and well and i really appreciate your time In the next episode of the IAH podcast, Melissa Clay will speak with James Ketch, professor of music. Be sure to visit the Institute's website at iah.unc.edu for future episodes of this podcast, the latest news on our fellows, and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.